Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Today's case takes us back almost 40 years to the mid-1980s, to a simpler time, before cell phones, before the internet, when big hair and mixtapes were all the rage. Come with me to the spring of 1986, when 13-year-old Cindy Zarzicki walked away from her home and would not be seen again. Cynthia Jocelyn Zarzicki, best known as Cindy, was born June 8, 1972, to parents Alice and Ed. Her parents were high school sweethearts who were married more than a decade before they divorced in 1981. After the divorce, Ed gained custody of the kids since Alice worked the night shift. Ed would tell Dateline that his daughter Cindy was a joy. She never gave him any problems. She was an outgoing girl who enjoyed life. Cindy always had a smile. And Cindy was athletic. She played first base on a softball team out of St. Basil's Catholic Church in East Detroit. And yes, the city of East Detroit will later be called East Point, but we're not there. Not yet. That won't happen until 1992. Cindy loved music. She sang in the youth choir at Covenant Presbyterian Church on Stevens in East Detroit. She also loved pop music. Cindy and her older sister, Connie, would sing along to the Madonna song Borderline and mimic Madonna's dance moves. Cindy was such a music lover that she kept mixtapes in her purse, just in case she needed a tune. Cindy also liked hitting the local Dairy Queen for an ice cream cone. Her favorite order was a twist with rainbow sprinkles. Like other teenage girls in the mid-1980s, Cindy liked to hang out at the mall, and she was interested in boys. Cindy was often allowed to go to the mall with friends, but because the mall was seven miles from her home, Cindy's dad had one strict rule about the mall. No walking home. She had to have a ride if she was going. In the spring of 1986, Cindy had her eye on one particular boy, Scott Ream. She'd met Scott at Macomb Mall in Roseville. A few weeks after meeting Scott, Cindy was back at that mall. And that day, she broke her dad's rule and walked home. She was caught walking home and subsequently grounded. Cindy was told she couldn't go anywhere after school and had to stay home. That meant no going to the mall and no seeing Scott. Cindy was crushed, and she lamented about when she would get to see Scott again. On April 19, 1986, Cindy was still grounded, but she was allowed to see her mom, so she went over to her mom's place. Her mother told Dateline that they talked about how Cindy was grounded. Alice said she was upset, but she knew she did wrong. Alice had a feeling there was something else upsetting her daughter, that she had something on her mind. But Cindy didn't tell her mom what was going on, 
nor did she talk about the surprise birthday party she'd been invited to. Instead, she played her mixtapes and tried on her mom's clothes, seeing how she looked in various outfits. Cindy then asked her mom if she could stay over, but since Alice was working, she told her no, she had to go back to her dad's. Cindy then decided to call her friend Kathy and see if she could come over. Kathy said yes, and Cindy went to Kathy's house. While Cindy was with Kathy, she told her of her plans for the next day. She was going to go to the Dairy Queen and get a ride to the surprise birthday party for Scott. For an alibi so she wouldn't get in trouble, she planned to tell her dad she was going to church with Kathy. Cindy thought her plan was foolproof. On April 20th, Cindy told her younger brother, Eddie Jr., that she was going out for a while. Eddie asked where she was going and reminded her that she was grounded. Cindy told Eddie to stay home, but he followed her up the street. Cindy then turned and screamed at her brother to go back home. Eddie stopped following Cindy. It was midday on April 20th. This is the last time anyone in the family would see Cindy alive. Around 3 o'clock, Cindy's dad called his ex-wife and asked if Cindy was there. Alice had not seen Cindy and told him that. By 6 p.m., Ed was concerned. He couldn't find his daughter, so he went to the police station, and the police told him he needed to wait 24 hours to file a report on his missing child. Listeners, as an aside, this, him being turned away, is absolutely infuriating, and it's no longer true. If someone goes missing, especially a child or an at-risk person, you can file a police report almost immediately. Records indicate that Officer Comer entered Cindy's information into the system on the morning of April 21, 1986. That entry was automatically entered into NCIC, the National Police Database, so anyone in the country who ran her, if they encountered Cindy, would see this and contact East Detroit Police. The morning of April 21, 1986, Investigator DeBurgrave took a report from Ed Zarzicki at the front desk of the police department. After he filed the report, he returned home and started calling Cindy's friends, asking if they'd seen her, but no one had. Cindy was not the type to run away, and in the 1980s, East Detroit was a family town and a relatively low-crime area. Her family was worried for Cindy's well-being. On the morning of the 21st, Ed returned to the police station where he was told that his daughter was likely a runaway. Ed disagreed with this sentiment, but he wanted police to look for his missing child. Two officers went to Cindy's school and spoke with her friends Kathy and Teresa. Neither girl revealed that Cindy had a plan to meet up with Scott Reem's father and attend Scott's birthday party. In June of 1986, police entered Cindy's dental records into the national database. This was done so it could be compared to any found remains. In 1987, after his daughter had been missing about a year, Ed Zarzicki was called to the morgue to look at a recovered body and see if it could be his missing child, which sounds like a horrifying task to complete. But the body did not belong to Cindy. 
With Cindy missing, it was on her parents, friends, and family to make flyers and posters for the missing girl. They also staked out the home of Scott Ream for any sign of Cindy. The Zarzikis asked that Cindy's photo and missing information be run in local newspapers, but the papers waited weeks to do a story, with the Macomb Daily finally running an article on May 22, 1986, titled, East Detroit Girl Missing. But her family wasn't done with the newspapers. Cindy, before she disappeared, had just seen the Madonna movie Desperately Seeking Susan. So her mom ran a personal ad titled, Desperately Seeking Cindy. But no one responded. June 8, 1986 was Cindy's 14th birthday. The day came and went with no sign of the missing girl. In the fall, Cindy's friends all went off to high school, where Ed worked as a custodian. Cindy's friend Teresa later told Dateline, I remember seeing him in the hallways, and just the broken look on his face. I can't even imagine. You know, as a parent myself, what that must have been like, to watch her friends grow up around him every day and not have his daughter. In time, the weeks and months became years, but no one heard from Cindy. There were no sightings of her. Detective Plack of the East Point Police worked the case, following up where he could. Complicating the investigation were the actions of other teen girls in the area who were spreading rumors about Cindy and about her disappearance. Store security at the local Kmart store reported seeing Cindy numerous times. The detective followed up with security and checked the area himself or had his partners do it every few days, but they never did find Cindy. In 1990, on Cindy's 18th birthday, her family put a message in the Detroit Free Press. Cindy, call your dad. Whenever he sees a young blonde woman with your gait, with anything resembling your electric smile, he prays it will be you. The constant search possesses him. As the years went on, there was no sign of Cindy. Her family remained hopeful that she had run away, or maybe she was somewhere and had amnesia. They never stopped looking. They didn't change their home phone number, and the house Cindy grew up in stayed in the family just in case one day she returned. Now, immediately following her disappearance, the East Detroit police did follow up on tips and leads in her case. There was a possible sighting of Cindy at a truck stop in Arizona, so Cindy's missing flyers were sent to the area and even sent to the L.A. County Sheriff in California in the hopes of finding the missing teen. And listeners, we'll be right back. In 1994, eight years after Cindy vanished, the Zarzicki family held a candlelight vigil in front of their home as a way to tell the police, we're still here, we haven't gone away. We need to get this thing going again. Now, the vigil attracted media interest, which made East Point, and yes, the town is now called East Point, assign a new detective to her case. Detective Davis took several steps to push Cindy's case back into the public eye. This included involving the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, contacting local television media to do a story, and reaching out to the show Unsolved Mysteries. There was also a new story in the Macomb Daily about Cindy's case, which featured an age-progressed photo of Cindy, who would now be in her early 20s. 
Detective Davis also turned to the Michigan State Police for assistance from their Behavioral Analysis Unit. During May and June of 1994, new information was uncovered. Information that told investigators that Cindy didn't leave her home aimlessly that Sunday morning. She left the house with a plan. Cindy was getting a ride to Scott Ream's surprise birthday party. Detective Danielle Davis now wanted to talk with Scott Ream to see what the now 20-something might know about Cindy's disappearance. But the July 4th holiday was fast approaching, so Davis made an appointment to talk with Scott the week after the holiday. Tragically, on July 4, 1994, 22-year-old Scott Ream was killed in a car accident, struck by a drunk driver. There would be no interview with Detective Davis. But there was a new lead. Scott's mother, Linda, noted that there was renewed interest in Cindy's case. She was concerned seeing her son's name mentioned in relation to Cindy's disappearance, so the grieving mother reached out to the detective. Eventually, Linda sat down with Detective Davis and said, Look, there was no surprise birthday party for Scott. Scott's birthday isn't in April, it's in January. So this talk of a surprise party doesn't make any sense. Linda then told Detective Davis something that broke the case wide open. She said that Scott's dad, Art Ream, had a history of preying on young girls. His behavior around teenage girls was what broke up their marriage. Davis then turned her attention to Arthur, Art, Ream. And before we talk about Art Ream, I'm going to tell you that I have a deep and visceral dislike of this man. You will probably hear this in my voice, so here we go. Art Ream was born Arthur Nelson Ream on May 9, 1949. He grew up in the city of Warren, a suburb of Detroit. Art did not have a stable or happy upbringing. He was raised in a family of somewhere between 8 and 11 kids. It's hard to say an accurate number because the reports differ. There are also reports of both physical and sexual abuse in the Ream home. Art was not spared. He would drop out of school in grade 7, and what he lacked in book smarts, he made up for in being a hard worker. He learned to install carpeting. Art would eventually open up his own flooring business. This work, installing carpeting and flooring, had him driving all over the Detroit area, including the far suburbs, in a windowless work van. Art Ream told the Detroit Free Press that he had a rough time with women. He married a total of four times. His first marriage was in 1969. That marriage ended in 1978 after Arthur was convicted of indecent liberties with a child back in 1974. I believe that this incident is what Linda was referring to during her meeting with Detective Davis. The details of this crime are as follows. In July 1974, 26-year-old Arthur was riding around with his 14-year-old brother-in-law when they abducted a 15-year-old hitchhiker in Shelby Township. Shelby Township is located in North Macomb County. Shelby Township is one of those far Detroit suburbs that I mentioned earlier. His brother-in-law later testified that Arthur pulled out a switchblade on the girl and told his brother-in-law to use duct tape to blindfold her. Arthur then raped the girl. The next day, the police talked to Arthur about the attack, and he told his brother-in-law, If I ever do this again, I'll kill the next one. 
Arthur was convicted and sentenced to serve between five and ten years. While Arthur was in prison, his wife filed for divorce. She said he also cheated on her often, including having a fling with their 15-year-old babysitter. And we know that sexual contact with a 15-year-old isn't cheating, it's sexual assault, but I digress. Art also sexually abused his teenage niece, but he would never face charges for this assault. His history of criminal sexual abuse of teen girls keeps growing. By February 1978, Arthur was granted early parole. In March, he married his second wife, Sherry. Arthur told the Detroit Free Press that this was an arranged marriage. The two were divorced by January of 1979. And while the police would go looking for her, the second wife, they wanted to learn more about Art's activities in the late 70s. They learned that she died of cancer a few years after she divorced Art Rehm. At the end of 1979, Art married his third wife, Jill. He and Jill separated in 1984, but they would remain married until 1986 when she filed for divorce claiming abuse, a claim that was probably true. She also spoke of Art's attraction, or perhaps fixation is a better word, on young teenage girls. During his third marriage, Art abused two other teen girls that we know of, his 12-year-old niece and a 13-year-old family friend. He plied these girls with alcohol and then sexually abused them, and once again, he will not be charged for these assaults. As police investigated Reem in the early 2000s, it was determined that he was a prolific serial rapist and pedophile. In 1992, Art married for the fourth and final time. This marriage didn't last because Art was after her teenage daughter. This wife would also accuse Art of spousal abuse. Once his fourth marriage dissolved, Art moved into his carpet warehouse, a building located just a few blocks from the Dairy Queen where 13-year-old Cindy Zarzicki liked to get a cone. And just as Cindy's case is finally heating up again, Detective Davis left the department and a new detective was assigned. Derek McLaughlin, better known as Mac. When the file landed on Mac's desk, he had a 13-year-old daughter of his own, and he fixated on solving Cindy's disappearance. Mac looked through all the police files, and he came to the same conclusion as Davis. It seemed likely that Cindy was a murder victim. Mac thought for sure that Scott Reem's father, Art, was involved. Mac was frustrated that while he had a suspect, he had almost no evidence to connect Art to Cindy's case. Then, in 1998, Linda, Art's first wife and Scott's mother, informed authorities that Arthur had recently been convicted of criminal sexual conduct in the third degree. He'd raped a 15-year-old. He was this child's legal guardian. He gave the girl alcohol, and then he raped her. And for this, Art was sentenced to serve between 4 and 15 years behind bars. For the next six years, Mac was convinced Arthur was involved in Cindy's disappearance, but he had no evidence to prove it. That's when an investigator at a Chicago-based interrogation company named Jennifer Lebo became involved. Lebo read the case files and called Mac, offering to help him out. The two of them started to work together on Cindy's case. 
But it wouldn't be until 2007 that Reem was finally questioned in Cindy's disappearance. He would spend about 20 hours talking to police over the course of a couple of days. They found Reem's behavior revealing. When Reem arrived and saw the police, he said, quote, I knew this day would come. First, Art told detectives that he'd never met Cindy. Police knew this was a lie because Cindy had told her own mother that she'd met Scott's father and felt like she could trust him. Art then told detectives he did know Cindy and he knew where she was buried. He also admitted strong sexual attraction to girls that were between 12 and 14 years old. However, he told them that he wasn't guilty. He was out shopping with his wife the morning Cindy went missing. His then-wife told police that it wasn't true. He had not been shopping with her that morning. When police looked back at old interviews, they found that Cindy's friend, Kathy, had seen a white work van at Dairy Queen the morning Cindy vanished. Guess who owned a white work van? Art Ream. In the fall of 1986, just a couple of months after Cindy disappeared, Art replaced his work van. Based on the evidence they uncovered, police believe that Art lured Cindy to the Dairy Queen under the ruse of a surprise party for Scott. He took Cindy to his workshop and carpet warehouse, a place where he stored materials that also happened to be the home of a bedroom set. There, he sexually assaulted Cindy. But she fought back, and from what we know of Cindy, she would have fought back. So he likely strangled her. Then Art concealed her body where no one would find it. On January 3, 2008, authorities announced that 58-year-old Art Ream, who was set to be paroled in December of that year, was facing first- and second-degree murder charges in Cindy's case. When this news broke in the press, several women came forward to say that Art had sexually assaulted them, more sexual assaults that he will never be charged with. So he was interviewed again, and he talked to police throughout the car ride from prison to the police station. Art Ream would go on trial for the murder of Cindy Zarzicki in June of 2008. While the prosecution was not able to bring up the multiple sexual assault convictions and accusations, they could use his own words, his fetish for 13- and 14-year-old girls, during the trial. It's maddening, but the jury didn't hear anything about the multiple accusations of criminal sexual conduct with teenage girls. His case was heard before Judge Mary Sharnowski. Judge Sharnowski has the nickname of Scary Mary. The prosecution told the jury that Art wanted to have sex with Cindy, but he didn't want to go back to prison, so the only option he had was to kill her. Prosecutors laid out his plan. Art called Cindy on April 19th and suggested that she meet him at the Dairy Queen and he would bring her to Scott's surprise party. This was a ruse because there was no party. Art picked up Cindy at Dairy Queen, then likely raped and killed her. Art did not want a conversation between his son and Cindy to spoil things, so Art sent Scott away to Texas for the weekend with one of his co-workers. Art also knew that his carpet warehouse would be deserted on Sunday, so if he got her there, he could be alone with Cindy. Cindy's friend Kathy took the stand and testified about the white work van she'd spotted at Dairy Queen on the morning Cindy disappeared. 
The prosecution said that Art behaved nervously at the mention of Cindy's name when he was first interviewed in 1994. When interviewed again in 2007, Art said that he did not know Cindy, but he did admit to, quote, having a fetish for 13- and 14-year-old girls. Not surprisingly, Art said he wasn't guilty. He said he was out shopping with his wife Jill at the time Cindy went missing. Jill took the stand and testified that they were not shopping together at this time. Then, prosecutors brought out items they'd found in Art's warehouse, including a photo of Cindy from an old missing child flyer. They called this a trophy. They also told the jury how they had all of Art's phone receipts, except 1986 was missing. Would the 1986 phone receipts show calls to the Zarzicki home? For the defense, they said Art didn't know Cindy, which left no motive, and there was no body. Cindy could be alive and well somewhere. They said the prosecution's case was circumstantial. Now, just before the case went to jury, Art asked for a deal. He offered to show authorities where Cindy's body was in exchange for a plea agreement. Cindy's family agreed to this deal, but it ended up falling through. The prosecutor later told the Detroit Free Press, this man was the lowest form of human life that he would bargain with a dead 13-year-old's body. On June 19th, after just two hours of deliberations, the jury found Arthur Nelson Ream guilty of first-degree murder. After his conviction, Art wrote a letter to the judge saying he would lead authorities to Cindy's body in exchange for vacating his sentence. Judge Sharnowski replied that if he showed where Cindy's body was, they could proceed from there. He would end up sending Scary Mary two letters, and Art was not much of a writer. Remember, he had a seventh grade education, so he was really frightened about going to prison and really wanted to get out of this. But eventually, Art would agree to lead them to Cindy's body without any kind of a deal. On July 9th, Arthur took authorities to a 22-acre plot of land near 23 Mile Road and North Avenue in Macomb Township. This land was owned by friends of his, and Art was familiar with the property. We know that he's hunted there in the past. When he took authorities there, they traveled more than half a mile into a wooded area and over a bridge. Then Art pointed to a 20-by-20-foot area, which was next to a riverbank. Art said he'd put her six feet down. Authorities dug and found Cindy's body, as well as her purse, which still had her beloved mixtapes inside. And despite what Art had claimed, Cindy was not buried six feet down. Now, both Mac and Jennifer Lebo were at the scene when Cindy's body was uncovered. Her family was waiting a few yards away, praying for long-awaited answers. It would take them six long months for testing to confirm what investigators knew. They had found Cindy Zarzicki. Even after leading authorities to Cindy's body, Art continued to say that he did not murder Cindy. He said he didn't rape her either and that he'd take a lie detector test to prove it. His story was that Cindy and Scott were in the warehouse and she accidentally fell down the elevator chute to her death, and that Art had concealed Cindy's body to protect his son. When they performed an autopsy on Cindy's remains, there was no sign of any fracture, which made Art's elevator story 
highly unlikely. On August 7, 2008, Arthur Ream was sentenced to life without parole. He appealed the conviction, and in 2010, the Court of Appeals upheld the conviction. While Art Ream has never confessed to abducting or murdering anyone else, police have long suspected he was responsible for additional murders and disappearances. One member of law enforcement said, he fits the profile of a psychopath. Investigators talked with inmates who had roomed with Ream, and one of them told investigators that Ream bragged of killing four to six other girls. Police gave Reem a polygraph because of these claims, but the polygraph yielded no new information for the team who was looking into other potential crimes. Now, Art Reem's name has come up in the following cases. The 1970 disappearance of 13-year-old Cynthia Kuhn from the Ann Arbor area. The 1972 murder of 17-year-old Donna Sarah of St. Clair Shores. Donna's body was found by hunters in Ray Township, which is in Macomb County. The 1974 disappearance of 16-year-old Nadine O'Dell from the Inkster-Taylor area. The 1979 disappearance of Kimberly King, which was discussed in Episode 74. Kim was from Warren, Michigan, and Kim and Cindy are very similar in age and in appearance. The 1981 disappearance of Kim Larrow from the Canton area. Canton is a suburb of Detroit in Wayne County. 15-year-old Kim has received very little coverage or attention, but there was a new push in her case a couple of years ago. Unfortunately, the push did not go anywhere. Finally, Art has been looked at in the case of 17-year-old Kelly Marie Brownlee. Kelly disappeared from 12 Oaks Mall in Novi in Oakland County, another Detroit suburb in the spring of 1982. Now, this case is particularly interesting because Art may have been installing carpeting at a nearby business at the time that Kelly vanished. In May of 2018, police did a massive dig on the site where Cindy's body was found. We discussed the Macomb County dig in episode 91. They did not find any additional remains, but Keep in mind that this is a huge, overgrown piece of property. There may still be remains on that site. Now, if you're wondering about the scale of the dig that they did in 2018, they came in and clear-cut an area the size of two football fields. They brought in the FBI and teams with metal detectors. They brought in cadaver dogs. It was a huge undertaking. Unfortunately, they didn't find anything. Also, in May of 2018, Art spoke to the Detroit Free Press. During this interview, he admitted to raping a teenage hitchhiker in the 1970s and to raping other underage girls, and he admitted to burying Cindy, but he denied killing Cindy and he denied killing anyone else. In August of 2018, police searched Reem's carpet warehouse. They did find some items they described as surprising, but they didn't get into specifics. These items were shown to families and sent off for testing, but it appears the items were inconclusive. Nothing found during this search changed the course of any investigations. As of this writing, 74-year-old Arthur Ream is alive and well. He has survived at least one bout of coronavirus. Art is incarcerated at the Bellamy Correctional Institution in Ionia, Michigan. 
Police continue to look at him in several cases, but nothing has come of it. I've wanted to cover Cindy's case for a long time, and I felt a real kinship with her and her disappearance. I'm glad that I got to cover it, and I hope that whatever crimes Art Ream has committed in addition to what he did to Cindy, that he will someday face justice and families will have answers. As always, I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.